Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue with our 16th podcast in our series in the first half of American history. In the 15th podcast episode, we looked at the American Revolution by simply defining what really is a political revolution. And the basis for that discussion was based on the work of none other than the revolutionary, no pun intended, work of Dr. Crane Britton. We looked at how that there were three stages of a political revolution that every political revolution in world history followed, with the sole exception, of course, of the American Revolution. We never had a phase two. We never had a reign of terror the way every other political revolution had. I then also foreshadowed the way that I would discuss the American Revolution as it is or as it was played out in three chronological phases 1775 to 78 was phase one second chronological phase 78 to 81 and then the diplomatic phase three 81 to 83. we then briefly looked at the very beginning of phase one that were after minor american wins in boston and south carolina britain was slow to advance and failed to deliver a complete victory. But as I warned you in that 15th podcast, that was about to change. So let's listen in now to see what Great Britain essentially throws at George Washington and the boys, and how does he fare? So to dispel the myth that Great Britain never really fought with the might that she had available to her is simply not true. Great Britain threw practically everything she did have at George Washington to thwart this revolution. Remember, there is a lot of land that they are about to lose if George Washington and his soldiers overrun Britain's dominance on the North American continent. So because of that, the first thing that Britain wanted to do, in addition to securing Boston, was also to secure the ports of New York City as that was a key entryway to the Northern colonies. And what she sent to secure that series of ports was an armada of ships like no one ever saw before. Listeners, it was absolutely massive. There, each of the ships consisted of 2,000 individual trees in order to build each one. The cost per ship was absolutely incomprehensible. Each ship consisted of four acres of canvas sail, 27 miles of cordage. Each one was over 200 feet long and over 50 feet wide, carrying 800 soldiers on each and over 100 guns. 
The equivalent in modern times would be like the United States sending in an aircraft carrier fleet because our aircraft carrier fleet is second to none in the world. If America lined up all of its aircraft carriers out on the open waters of the Pacific or Atlantic Ocean, we have more square mileage of truly aircraft carrier decks than every other country's air forces, uh, aircraft carriers in the world combined. This is the equivalent of what Great Britain was sending to slog George Washington and his rebels. And Britain was sending over 350 of them, along with over 32,000 disciplined and trained soldiers. To put this into perspective once again, or further, we often know or hear that the largest naval invasion in world history was D-Day during the Second World War, the invasion of the Normandy Peninsula of France by General Eisenhower and the Allies again during the Second World War, June 6, 1944. Sometimes that begs the question, well, if D-Day was the largest naval invasion, what record did it break? It broke the one that Great Britain is about to unleash on her North American colonies. That's the record it broke. Before that, you had to go back to 1588 for the Spanish Armada and her attempt to invade the British Isles, unsuccessfully, of course. And before that, you'd have to go back to the days of the Roman Empire. This, as I say, is what Great Britain was sending. And, and again, listeners, this is just one port or one city that she's designating all this firepower to. The, the next time that America would see that many deaths in New York City proper would not be until 9-11 of 2001, truly. So because of what Great Britain was sending, George Washington immediately knew that he was going to be outnumbered, outgunned, out-everything. To the point that, as his aide-de-camp Alexander Hamilton noted, as far out as their telescopes could see, out into the open wash waters of the Atlantic, they could see nothing but British flags, a sea of canvas, flying over an even larger sea of wood, making up these 350-plus huge naval ships. Needless to say, and again, I don't cover the battles specifically, but needless to say, in a culmination of these efforts, George Washington's forces were simply annihilated. However, despite the agony that George Washington faced, seeing how many of his soldiers being carried away as prisoners of war, almost all of which would die by starvation or malnutrition or dehydration, by the end of the day, Washington couldn't hide the smirk on his face. As one of his top aides asked General Washington, what is there possibly there to smile about with this beyond humiliating loss? As he said, the lesson was learned. Simply put, both space and time were on America's side. So the only way to lose the war was to actually try to win it. And that doesn't make sense, does it? What did Washington mean? What does that mean? 
The only way to lose the war was to try and win it. Later, he explained his comments. As intimidating as those British ships were, and how could they not be? George Washington commented to an aide, the last that I know and saw of those British ships, though, not one of them has a set of wheels on it, and not one of them has a pair of feet. In other words, if I, George Washington and the rebels, continue to try to fight Great Britain where she's strongest at the shore and on the water, sure, I'm going to lose. So, Great Britain, if you want me, if you want to put an end to this revolution, come and get me. And we'll see in a moment how that plays out. First off, there was more bad news, though. Congress was chased out of Philadelphia, truly routed by yet another naval invasion by Great Britain, and they were on the run, which, of course, was demoralizing to George Washington and his men. What's worse is that all of his army recruits, their terms ended on January 1st, 1777. This truly could have put an end to the revolution and its infancy, had it not been truly for a last-minute boat ride. Washington knew that, yes, there were minor wins back in Boston, but by and large, there had not been a significant conquering of even the smallest of Great Britain's armies. As a result, Washington was desperate for a win, and desperate times call, of course, for desperate measures. And that's when Washington led 2,400 troops across the Delaware River to Trenton, New Jersey, for the famous, quote, crossing of the Delaware, end quote. What I ask you to do is to put this podcast on pause for a moment and, and type in in your search engine, crossing of the Delaware. And of course, you'll get the picture, the painting by Emanuel Lutz that was painted in 1851 of George Washington crossing the Delaware River. Please note that there is a whole heck of a lot of inaccuracies due, of course, to artistic license. Not to take anything away from Lutz's work. I've seen the original and I'm getting chills right now when I think about myself and remember standing in front of it and how awe-inspiring that massive work of art really is. That said, the work, however, portrayed truly what America felt at heart. If you're by chance looking at a picture of this while listening to the podcast, this is what you're seeing. First off, you're, what you're seeing, of course, is that the tallest human being in that picture is none other than George Washington himself. And how could it not be any other way? But notice, though, despite George Washington, with his knee confidently raised on one of the benches, looking out towards the land where he wanted to conquer his enemy, Notice that the technically tallest object in that painting is not Washington, but the American flag. And that's where Lutz was so in, uh, intelligent in his approach to this work, is to make sure that as important as George Washington is to our nation's history, George Washington never, as we will see in future podcasts, he never put himself above that flag. Where we see some inaccuracies in terms of this artistic license 
is number one, the last person that would have been standing up on those boats was any soldier, much less George Washington. You're too easy of a target if the British have scouts that are ready to take pot shots at the invading army. If you look up to the middle of the picture on the right-hand side, you see what essentially looks like other boats with soldiers that are also crossing, to the point that you could draw the conclusion that there were innumerable boats that were attempting to cross the Delaware. Well, innumerable is one thing that they were not. Washington was only able to secure four rowboats or skiffs to get whatever soldiers that he could muster to actually cross to the other side. Because again, that's how small this invading force was compared to what he thought he would need. Yet, because of the surprise of this attack on all days, of course, January, December 25th, Christmas Day, a day that, again, George Washington was embarrassed because he knew that the British would be celebrating Christmas that day, as Washington and his own forces should have been doing. But again, out of desperation, he couldn't wait. He couldn't take any chances. He needed to secure a victory. He needed to put a blow into that massive, impenetrable defensive British stations of soldiers. And because of that, out of 1,500 Hessian forces, and British forces that Washington was able to conquer, 100 would be killed and over 900 would be taken prisoners. To give you an idea just how effective surprise attacks can be, there were eight rebels injured and only four were killed. It is the numerical proof that surprise attacks really do work. Not to sit and enjoy the spoils of victory, Washington moved on for the Battle of Princeton, which was next when the British lost 2,000 soldiers compared to 200 rebels. That, along with the Battle of Saratoga the following September of that year in the New York region, all of these were witnesses to Washington's new warfare tactics. So again, reminding you that Washington said at the conclusion of the Battle of New York City in September of 1776, that the only way that he would lose this war is if he would try to win it. This inaction is what Washington meant. How do you fight the Redcoats? How do you neutralize that massive naval advantage that Great Britain enjoyed? You get them out of those boats. Number one, you draw the redcoats inland. Two, string them out, tire them out, wear them out. And then step three, take them out. When exhausted, Washington then employed the guerrilla tactics. Please know that again, this was extremely embarrassing for George Washington. Remember that George Washington was at one time a British officer. He knew that proper fighting was in block formation with your pristine military uniforms fighting the enemy who also showed up in block formation. But Washington could never get that. He never had at any one time a significant enough numerical advantage in soldiers that he had the time to train and the money to establish in a standard American uniform. There never would be an American Revolution uniform. How could there be? 
So for Washington to employ these tactics, again, was embarrassing. And which may be of a surprise to some of my listeners, Washington thought he would go down in, in infamy because of the backhanded way that he had to fight the world's strongest army and navy. But these tactics worked. And in the Battle of Saratoga, New York, which went from September to October of 1777, the British general, yet another one, this time Burgoyne, had to surrender to George Washington. Remember, as I said earlier, the British would flush through five different commanders, while the American rebels always had one. But that was the victory that America needed that propelled America's, the American Revolution, into phase two. The reason being is because phase two is when America would have its first international assistance, this from the country of France, who entered stage center. Please note that it's not so much what Great what France physically did for the United States cause. I'm not minimizing her positive contributions. It says they were significant. But the effects of France entering the war against Great Britain immediately made the British soldiers shudder. The reason being is that prior to France entering the war, Great Britain owned the Atlantic Ocean. She owned the sea channels from Great Britain proper all the way to the Americas. The entire British Navy only had one direction to look for potential threat, west, towards the British North American shores. That would no longer be the case now, because now Great Britain would be confronting a two-front war. She was no longer safe on the ocean as she had to be prepared from an attack by the French Navy at any moment. To underestimate that would be to underestimate the enemy, a number one way to lose a war. And now Great Britain's forces and her massive navy would be divided. That would lead to several other battles within phase two of the war. But the one that I'm going to focus on is the final one, Yorktown, in October of 1781. Because Yorktown is the embodiment of all of the problems that Great Britain faced now that a major European power was siding with with Britain's rebel colonists. Supported by the French in October of 1781, the United States Navy, along with the French Navy, trapped the British in the Chesapeake region under Lord Cornwallis, the fifth and final field marshal that Great Britain attempted to secure her British, her victory. Realizing that there was nowhere for Cornwallis and his forces to run, the British ultimately surrendered on October 19th, 1781. But please note, while it may seem that I'm putting Washington and the French forces on a pedestal, I am not, because Britain was not defeated. She surrendered, but Cornwallis fully anticipated that the fighting would resume 
the following spring. Then why is this considered the final battle of the American Revolution after having been fought since April of 1775? Believe it or not, it's nothing that George Washington did specifically any more than is what the French did. What ended the American Revolution here in the battlefield of Yorktown was actually the British Parliament. Simply put, they would no longer fund the war. They were through. There was no way that British opinion was going to support Parliament for yet another draining year of this endless civil war. Now, if any of you are rolling your eyes saying, okay, come on, Chris, isn't that splitting hairs? I mean, technically that means that with George Washington's actions, that yes, Great Britain was defeated by Washington. If you want to admit that, if you want to draw that conclusion, I'm not here to dispute that. But please also consider this. If you think George Washington defeated Great Britain because of those tactics that he used, then if that's your definition of victory, then you also have to admit that a future Vietnamese leader by the name of Ho Chi Minh also defeated the United States in a future Vietnam War by its conclusion in April of 1975. No way, you say. There's no way we'll ever admit that great, that North Vietnam defeated the United States of America. We decided to pull out of the war. But that's also what happened with the American Revolution. The British taxpayers were drained and tired of continuing to fight a civil war that seemingly year after year British commander after British commander being defeated by this pesky George Washington that could constantly be spotted, but never arrested and never killed. They simply had had enough. That's what would propel the American Revolution into the third phase of the conflict, which would begin on September 3rd, 1783. And that's what we'll begin with in the 18th podcast in our series in the first half of American history. So thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please go to my website, it, as well as especially too, if you have any book recommendations. But thank you again for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.